0: We're all concerned about COVID-19. This continues to go on and on and on. It's, it's all that's really in the news. Mainstream media, social media, neighbors talk about it. It just it seems nonstop. And we, we can back up, and we can look at models, and we can look at projections, at really smart people, scholars, doctors, politicians all giving us a counsel and opinions, but they don't know facts. Opinions are important things, but they're not always factual. And so we can get mad at the people that are giving us information. That does a lot of good, right? But we get caught in this swirl. And uh, it occurred to me as we we think about the time we're in, it's it's unique for most of us in our lifetime. Unless you're old enough to remember Pearl Harbor or perhaps 9-11 for many of us, there's nothing that's quite happened to our country that's gotten everybody's attention. And we're concerned about people losing their jobs. Their their livelihood, their ability to go back to a job when all this is over. And what if it comes back in a new form? All these things we're worried about. Remember that phrase, we fear this like the plague? Well, it's become a truism. We are fearing COVID-19 like a plague. We can't see it. We can't vaccinate against it. We don't exactly know how to treat it. We can't stop it. So we're cloistered at home, we're self-quarantining, we're self-containing, we're social distancing so we don't hurt other people or get it ourselves. And there's a lot of wisdom and common sense. And then we have Christians and smart people that say, we should have church anyway, we should go ahead and do this. And others that say, no, we should obey the government and the law. Take a deep breath. You're where you are right now. You're probably at home you probably didn't go to church to a building and i think that's the wise and prudent thing to do and i bless god for technology that we have that we can do this and have this kind of community and fellowship it's been so exciting to watch people with their snapshots uh, screenshots of their zoom with all their friends whatever tool they're using and some community groups still meet and they take a picture of themselves and course, one guy is always over there half asleep. But nevertheless, they're still talking. They're still connecting. They're still having a relationship. And that is so important. But if I step back on what's happening and we look at COVID-19 and we look at Easter, the thought occurs to me is this whole thing is a matter of our mortality. It is a matter of our mortality. We live and we die. This is not morbid. This is magnificent to think about. And if we were to go back in time a little bit and think about how the ancients and other people dealt with the fear of the unknown, the fear of death, the fear of disease, we can learn an awful lot. And we can also calibrate our own lives so we're not so frenetically worried about this stuff and we can handle it with common sense and with trust in the Lord. It is a matter of mortality and life and death has always made people afraid. It's never not been something we're afraid of. Now, certainly, uh, in the ancient world, death was a lot more a part of life than today. Uh, Childhood mortality rates were very high. Even in our country, 60% of children would die before they ever got out of the hospital. They would lose people. Uh, Men died in their 40s and 50s routinely. In some developing countries around the world, if you live past 40 or 50 as a man, it's pretty unusual. We in the West are pretty anesthetized from the frequency of death. And so this pulls it in fast focus real close to us and that's why we get worried. Let's think about the Levitical priest. The Levi's, and that's a book that many of us skip over, in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, there's all this prescription that God gave the priest about leprosy. Now we've probably got very bad information and certainly we have bad images of what leprosy is and isn't. The leprosy in the Old Testament is very hard to define exactly what they were diagnosing. But we know in chapter 13 and 14, there were different kinds. It could actually be in a building. And it might be in the stones or what we call the mortar of a building. And so the priest would go and they would look at it and they would decide what kind it was. And you know what their prescription was if they thought it was bad? They quarantined it. They moved away from it for a while. And they said, let's don't go near that for a period of days. And then they would check it again. And if it had gotten worse, they would actually tear the building down. (laughs) If it had gotten better they would say, okay, we'll wait a little longer or it's okay for you to re-inhabit. So they had a pretty good bead on what was going on with the law God gave them about something that they didn't understand. Was it a fungus? Was it a mold? Anyone who's had a home or knows a friend that had black mold, that terror idea, you're gonna tear the house down or can you fix it? And it was no different in antiquity. It's not until the Talmud, the 14th century, that we start understanding a bit about the ancient's view of disease. The Talmud said, uh, don't put money in your mouth. Now, just for sidebar, we have the scriptures, we have the Torah, the law, we have the Mishnah, and we have the Talmud. Each of these is sort of a component. Think of a study Bible. And so when you read the Talmud or the Torah or the Mishnah, you're reading these commentaries on the Torah, these commentaries on the scripture. So the Talmud was a commentary, if you will, written by rabbis on the scriptures. And they said, don't put money in your mouth. Now that may have been a double entendre, but what they were probably after was, if you put it in your mouth, it's filthy and you might get sick. They did not understand germs. They didn't understand germ theory or infectious diseases like we do today. In fact, if you look at Egyptian cultures, Indian cultures, Asian cultures, the medicine of those cultures is very different than what we would call Western medicine. We have to fast forward quite a bit, and there's a term in the medical realm called, it it, it sounds like asthma, but it's the word miasma. It's spelled a little differently, M-I-A-S-M-A, miasma. And that was when the ancients thought that air could somehow carry illness. Again, they didn't understand bacteria or molds, but they thought that bad air could make people sick. Believe it or not, it's not till very much later, in fact, about 170 years ago, that a guy named Louis Pasteur comes along and he begins to understand germ theory. And of course, we have what we call pasteurized products as a result of Louis Pasteur. Uh, And we would take the bad bacteria out, for conversation's sake, so that that milk would last longer. And, of course, now we're going back to, well, we should not do that to milk. We should have it the way God made it. But nevertheless, the important science was understanding bacteria, understanding how disease was transmitted, understanding germ theory. So we fast forward with this germ theory. A guy named Joseph Lister, he was a Quaker. He's in the 1800s. And uh, if you went for surgery in the 1800s, let's just say in the U.K. or in the United States, you had about a 50-50 chance of surviving the surgery because of infection after the surgery. And most of those procedures were pretty, uh, let's just say, brutal. And so let's say you had a, a, a diseased arm. They would just cut your arm off, and then they would hope that the infection wouldn't kill you. Well, about half or more of the patients died. So Lister comes along, and he says, let's use carbolic acid. Carbolic acid is the solution to clean the area of the surgical field and the hands of the doctors. Well, amazingly, his mortality rates stop. Patients live. So he starts draping patients with fabric that had been dipped in carbolic acid. And these patients are living. Now, you would think this would take off and all these doctors would say, this is the greatest thing ever. It took a lot of persuasion, a lot of discouragement before the medical community would change. In fact, there's a pejorative connection with the name Lister, Listerine, that kills germs, right? All these stories, whether it's the Levitical priest, whether it's a guy named Louis Pasteur or a guy named Lister, they were trying to fend off mortality, they were trying to slow down the way people died but you know there's another problem we still have a lot of pain so a dentist comes along this dentist is an interesting guy named horace wells how would you like to be a dentist without anesthesia Remember movies where the in the west where the dentist puts his hand on the patient uh, his foot on the patient's chest and he's pulling a tooth out and the guy's screaming bloody murder because it hurts so bad what a great profession i think i'll go be a dentist right Uh, And just in our lifetime, the idea of anesthesia, to turn the pain down, to make people, quote, sleep so we can perform these surgical procedures. And again, his findings were not readily embraced. In fact, the first time he showed it in a theater to other surgeons... Uh, it didn't work on the patient. And the patient screamed in agony when he did the dental procedure. It took him a lot of years to convince people. And until we've understood ether and nitrous oxide and how to combine these in the right way, did we begin the science of anesthesia. And we live in a day where we have medications to do with bacteria and infections. And we have a way to anesthetize the patient so he or she is not in pain. Think about that for just a moment. 170 years and less. That's how medicines change. So you and I grew up in a culture in the West where we think about taking pills, taking injections, taking vaccines, going to the doctor. If we have surgery, being put out. When we come out of surgery, having ways to mitigate, to manage that pain, we do not understand how most of the world has lived and most of the world still lives because it's a matter of mortality. We don't wanna suffer. We don't wanna be in pain. We don't wanna die. That's sewn into the human condition. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have anesthesia than to bite on a stick, right? I like these things. The consequence of this is we're still mortal. Even though we have these wonderful tools at our disposal, and I'm glad to be the recipient of them if I go to the dentist or the doctor, even though we have these wonderful tools We're still mortal. We're living longer, yes, than the ancients did because of these technologies, but we're still going to die. That's not meant to be morbid. This is a magnificent truth if you understand how we are made and why God made us this way. When God created the image bearers called Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, they were like him. They were image bearers. They had a relationship with God that the animal kingdom and the plants and the world and the environment do not have with God. That was an environment for God to put the crown of creation, man and the woman, and to have perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect worship of God the Father. Uh, of course, Adam falls, and when he fell, he fell far. R- remember the old, uh, the old uh, nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty and I had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, number one, in all the books I read to my kids, uh, Humpty was an egg and he had these little skinny legs and he was on a wall. Number one, if you're an egg, what are you on a wall? I mean, come on, use some common sense, fitting an Easter, right? Uh, But the point of the story is he fell and he broke. The king's horses and the king's men, all the resources of the sovereign, all the power of the sovereign king couldn't repair when Humpty fell. That's the story. And so when Adam fell, he fell far and mortality came close because prior to that, he would live forever in a relationship with God. And now that's been taken away. It's been damaged. God always had one plan. He knew this outcome was going to occur. So he's always had one plan. So how does he solve the problem of mortality? Because it is a matter of life and death. The fear of disease haunted everyone, unless perhaps you're an existentialist, or an atheist, or you think that when you die, you're food for worms. Now, that may be true of a small percentage of the population, but most people fear death. Most people are concerned, curious what happens if and when I die. Genesis chapter two, we learn the beginning of the story. In chapter two, verse 15, we read, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And let me just comment as you're looking at that verse for a second. To cultivate and keep is is to worship God. It's not the idea of trimming the hedges and weeding the garden. That's how we think about those words. It was a context for for man to worship his creator. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That last phrase, you will surely die. Translations are are interesting things. Ever since Babel, we have a problem in translating. The Old Testament was a word play, mot to moot. We would say in English, Dying, you will die. The day you eat from that, dying, you will die. This separation will occur. Mortality enters the equation when man took the fruit. Why does man, why does woman take the fruit? Because we don't like rules. We want to be like God. Seeing the fruit was able to make her like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds pretty appealing. She eats, he eats, they fell. And now we have this fallen condition but eternity is sown into man's heart. Why do we wonder what happens when we die? Why do we wonder what happens when we suffer? Why do we wonder about things we can't quantify? The scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He also said eternity in their heart so that no, man will not find out the work which the Lord has done from the beginning even to the end. He set eternity in their heart. So when you look across the ocean, if you're at the beach, you're a beach lover, or you look across the stars at night, if you look at the beautiful array of stars in the, in the evening sky, or if you're a mountain person, you look across the beautiful mountains, whether it's sunrise or sunset, and you, you realize how small we are. But there's something bigger out there. I believe that's how God sowed eternity in our hearts. We know there's something more. Why do people look at the Hubble? Why do people look at microscopes? Why do people go to the bottom of the ocean? There's got to be something more. And this eternity calls man because he was made to live forever, but mortality interrupted that process. Well, Derek Kidder, one of my favorite Old Testament uh, commentators, writes beautifully on this. He says, we know something about eternity. Enough at least to compare the fleeting with the forever. Things that go by quickly versus there must be something longer. Now listen carefully. We are like the desperately nearsighted, inching our way across some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as the Creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. Don't you love that? Listen again. We're like the desperately nearsighted, inching our way along some great tapestry or fresco. You can't take it in. It's too big. Eternity was sown into the heart of man, and mortality breathes down our necks. Are we going to be in pain? Are we going to die? Will we lose a loved one to some disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, all kinds of horrible ways we can die, cancer, heart What's going to happen? And that stirs up this mortality fear, but there's a solution. The so-called crimson thread through the Bible, that we can look at this red thread that goes back from, really from Genesis all the way through Revelation, about the personal work of Jesus Christ is an important thread. And certainly people can take that thread and cut it apart and ignore the Bible but two facts remain we were made in the image of God and he has set eternity in our hearts and that's why mortality breathes down on us because we know something's not quite right you know the the pious Jews loved God they loved the word they loved the law they loved what we'd call the Bible they love the scriptures And one of my favorite characters in the New Testament is an Old Testament prophet named Simeon. And this section I wanna read to you comes from the birth narrative actually. It's after Jesus has been born and Mary and Joseph take him to the temple complex as according to the law. And listen to chapter two of Luke beginning at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Looking for the consolation of Israel, some of you might know the 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 Christian Christmas songs. Israel's strength and consolation. They're looking for God to come and help them because they're in trouble. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simply, God told him he wouldn't die till he saw this Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, uh, brought in the child Jesus to carry out the custom of the law, then he took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God. And he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother were amazed at these things that were being said about him. Simeon blessed them. Notice he didn't bless the child, he blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child. And I see a picture of Simeon holding that baby and saying, this, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts may, uh, from many hearts may be revealed. And those of you who know your Bible know Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 might have an allusion to this, that the word of God is living and after sharper than a two-edged sword. Dividing joint and marrow, dividing heart and mind is the picture. Uh, Simeon is giving them a a prophecy about this Christ. Christ is a Messianic title, the Lord Jesus Christ, this one. And notice he talks about everyone's going to see this. The nations are going to be aware of this. It's a glory to Israel, but all people will see this. But he does immense words. He'll be opposed. People will not like the message that Jesus brings. Well, the Gospels present this Jesus Christ as the God-man, always existing, eternally being, yet he comes into time. He's clearly predicted, he's clearly prophesied, he's talked about hundreds of times clearly and specifically in the Old Testament as the one who will come and deliver us from our problems, more specifically, to deliver us from sin. Now, Jesus is on mission. When he comes to earth, he's, his face is like flint, one of the gospel writers says. He's like stone pointed to his objective to go to Calvary and die on a cross for you and me. But what's interesting is the life of Christ, he's 30 years old. He becomes what we call in his public ministry at age 30. He's only on the planet really doing something for three years. Think about this. 30 years. 30 years. He's basically in obscurity, and now for three years, he's going to walk around the Sea of Galilee and surrounding parts, and he's going to change the world literally. One of the verses that Jesus speaks, John records in his gospel that always dismantles me is in John 8, verse 29. He, Jesus speaking of his father, he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And I stop right there. He always does what pleases his father. And I immediately go back to, I, how often do I do what is pleasing to my father? How often do you do what is pleasing to Christ? What a compelling statement. I always do the things that are pleasing to him, but don't miss this man without reserve. I always do that, which is pleasing to him, but he does not want to go to the cross. And this is where we see the humanity of Jesus Christ, the God-man, in beautiful descriptions. Now, remember the context. The paparazzi have turned into religious police and they want to kill him. His closest friends are going to abandon him and deny him at the last hour of his life. And in this inhumane crucifixion that Jesus is going to experience, we have this picture of what? The Garden of Gethsemane. Don't miss the storyline. We have the Garden of Eden where man was made in the image of God to have a relationship of worship with God. Now we have the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a wordplay as an olive press. And if you've been to Israel or when you go to Israel, you will see all the olive trees still grown on the slopes of that hill in the Kedron Valley. You can't move valleys, hills, streams, mountains, uh, bodies of water. You can't change them. And so we know within a hundred yards of what this garden of Gethsemane would have been geographically. So this is where Jesus goes and he sweats drops of blood. Listen to how Luke records Jesus' oil press. The Gethsemane is an oil press. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him Strengthening him and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus does not face his death with platitude. He's not, I'm so happy to go die on the cross. I can't wait to get this over. I can't wait to see the other side of suffering to glory. He's fully God, fully man. And we see a glimpse into the eternal God man. He doesn't want to do this. Now, that takes a little understanding for you and me that's beyond our theological ability. He's going to endure the wrath and the punishment and the suffering that we deserve because of our sin. For all mankind, all the sin of humanity is going to be poured out on Jesus Christ, the wrath of God. And for that time, he will be separated from his Father. That is a wrath and a suffering that you and I can't comprehend. Is Jesus mortal? Does he fear death? Does he fear suffering and pain? I would say yes and no. He's the God-man, but he is going to die. It's a matter of mortality. The fact of this is we miss so much of this, So, For Jesus to die, how can the God-man who's lived forever die? I'm reminded of John Stott's great quote, And I want you to listen carefully to this. John writes, John Stott writes, If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. For Adam to fall as an image bearer of God and be broken and disconnected and going to die now. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes to die in our place on our behalf instead of us. And he does not want to go through this. But if he doesn't go through this, we don't have a chance. God's love transcended his own love for his son to send him to die for you and me. I've often told the story, and anyone who has children or grandchildren can so identify with this. There, there are a number of people in my life that I would die for. I, I truly believe that. Um, I've had friends that have needed help, and I would gladly consider donating an organ, putting my life at risk to give them an opportunity. Some of you perhaps have done that. Uh, I would die for my wife. I would die for any of my children, any one of them. If it was me or them and it was possible to make the decision, I'll die so my daughters, my son, do not have to die. But it changes entirely if you were to ask me, will you give me your one and only son to kill instead of you dying for him? That's a different love. I couldn't do that, frankly. I couldn't give you one of my children so that you could live my children dying for you. Christ is God's only son, his unique son. God so loved him, he sent him. Christ so loves his father, he always does what is pleasing to the father, even to the point that God, in a sense, turns his face away as the wrath and punishment falls upon his son because of our mortality. Because we're diseased, we're dying, we're decayed, we're in trouble. And unless someone comes to our aid, to our rescue, we have no hope. The death of the God-man is something I find fascinating because it is as much a miracle as is the resurrection. How do you kill God? How did the Roman soldiers crucify and kill Jesus? And of course, if you know the story, you know your Bible well, they didn't kill him. Crucifixion was an intolerable and horrible suffering way to execute a person. But you know from the Gospels that Jesus willingly gives up his life. Listen to John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, and remember they put it on a stick and gave him a little wine and put it on his lips, and he turned away from it. He says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He volitionally dies. This is a mind blower, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. The eternal God-man Jesus Christ can't be killed by human agency. They put him on a cross to execute him, but unless he gave up his life willingly to please his Father in obedience to his Father, we don't have a chance. So the miracle of Jesus' death is as profound as the miracle of jesus resurrection because only god can overcome death over god can overcome the grave and live again so ostensibly jesus is dead we've killed god so to speak but more than that he was buried why to confirm he's dead that he wasn't swooned or unconscious or resuscitated he was dead He's wrapped in burial cloths, interlaced with tar-like fragrances that some have speculated weighed 30, 40 more pounds on top of his body, wrapped somewhat like a mummy, and put in this stone-hewn grave. Do you remember it? He's born, and the king's English said he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in what? A manger. Not a wooden crèche. There's no wooden crèches in antiquity. Animals would destroy a wooden feeding trough in very short order. You use stone-hewn troughs. And again, when you go to Israel, we'll show you some real mangers all around Megiddo. They were stone-hewn areas where the grain was poured, where that feed was poured for the animals. That's what Jesus is placed as an infant. He's wrapped in cloths and put in a stone-hewn feeding trough. And when he dies, he's wrapped in cloths and put in a stone hewn grave. These images aren't romantic. They're biblical. And they remind us of who this man is, that he is God's son. Well, you know the story. Three days later, Mary Magdalene wants to go to the tomb, wants to attend the grave. And so she runs there and she finds an open and empty grave. She can't believe it. She goes back to tell the disciples and they don't believe it. And so John and Paul have a foot race back, Peter have a foot race back to the grave, and they find this chrysalis, this burial cloth that's laying there. The headband is separate. I believe what that description means is the body transcended through that cloth. Jesus didn't wake up and unwrap himself like a mummy, it's, it's like one unit, and he comes through it. And the angel has moved the stone away, and they look at it in disbelief. And. The accounts of the Gospels, we have to kind of piece them together. But Mary will run into Jesus and won't quite recognize him because he's a little different. And then when she realizes who he is, she hugs him and he says, stop clinging to me. And there's a little exchange there because he has to ascend to the Father. Of course, you know, we don't believe this stuff. There's no theological, scientific way anybody can explain this. So what do we do? We don't believe it. We're skeptical. There is no way to understand. There's no theological explanation that's going to say, oh, I get the idea that he lived, died, was buried, and came back from the life. So we have a guy named Thomas. Thomas, to me, is our theological surrogate. I love Thomas. I love Thomas. You know exactly what he says. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 27. He, Jesus, said to Thomas, so now they're meeting face-to-face, which has, has to be a little uncomfortable, right? Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see And yet believed. So we've got our theological surrogate asking the question we all want to ask. I want proof. But we're all mortal. We're afraid of disease and of death and what happens afterwards. I don't believe it unless I see it. Okay, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Believe. But, you know, even more importantly are people that believe and have never seen. And that's you. And that's me. We have the opportunity to trust in Christ even though we haven't seen the risen Savior the way these men did. Those who once denied him and ran away like cowards are completely transformed. That's perhaps even as remarkable as the resurrection. These guys that were afraid are now a force to be reckoned with. And when we come to the book of Acts, and this is new to me. I hate to even admit this. This is new to me. In the last few weeks, the book of Acts is a series of sermons interspersed, of course, of the story of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But those sermons, let's just look at four or five of them super briefly. They're about one thing, resurrection. I'd never seen the connection. I knew they were about the Christ. I knew they were about the gospel, but I missed the central piece of the arguments of these sermons were the resurrection. Let's look at a couple of these. We know the story of Peter's threefold denial, right? Well, after some time, after Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit comes, we see Peter preaching these incredible sermons. And in chapter two, when the result of the sermon, 3,000 some people are gonna believe in Jesus Christ. Here's a guy that denied him a few days ago. He ran away, he lied, he cussed. Now he's preaching to a hostile audience and 3,000 of them believe in the message. But listen carefully to verses 22 and 23 and 4 in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. The resurrection. The proof of Peter's message, not only being empowered by God's spirit, is he was resurrected. You have to pay attention to what happened to this man. Again, we could look at chapter uh, three verses twelve and thirteen at another account of this chapter three verses twelve and thirteen. This is Peter's second sermon, as we count them in the story of Acts. Verse twelve. When Peter saw this, he he replied to the people, "Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our, our own power or piety we'd made him walk? He he and James had healed a man just prior." Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but you put to death the Prince of Peace whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. And we could go on through the book of Acts and look at these sermons. I encourage you to do that. The argument that the apostles use that this is real was the resurrection. So so for you and me, whether it's Peter's denial, whether it's the stoning of Stephen who is calling them out on what happened to them, and he looks up and he goes, I see the Son of Man. Resurrection, it's an impossible thread to miss through the acts of the apostles. You see, the author of life is the only one that has a solution for death. Until you and I embrace this, we're always going to be living in fear of disease and of death and our mortality. This is no rush to die. This is no rush to go to heaven. Now, some of us, as we get older and we have lots of ailments and we live to whatever that number is for you, 80, 90, whatever, you go, you know, I've lived long enough. That's, that's fine. But... Very few of us, if we're a sound mind, want to rush to death. But when death comes close to home, it gets our attention. And the only solution to death is that the author of life has provided the solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's very simple. It's belief. It's trust. It's putting your faith in him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. Don't miss the big picture From the beginning of time, he designed man in his image to have a relationship with him. He designed you to have a relationship with him. You're unique. As my psychologist mentor friend would often hold his finger up and he would say, all my fingerprints are unique. Why in the world would I think personalities should all be the same? And why in the world would I not believe that God uniquely made us? You're unique and he loves you. And the God-man died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. And by belief, by trust, by professing faith in Jesus Christ, that's the only solution to mortality. That's the only solution. No pill, no vaccine, no self-quarantine, no product coming down the line. It has to do with the one person who lived, who died, who was buried to confirm his death, thank goodness he was resurrected by God's power to give eternal life to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. It's a matter of mortality. It's an eternal matter. That's what Resurrection Sunday is about. That's why the Christian has the greatest hope on the planet. And my prayer for you is that number one, if you know Christ, that you have confidence, that you don't fear the future. What a waste of emotion to fear the future. You can't change it anyway. Why would you fear it? For you who don't know, you're not sure where you stand. I would pray. I would plead. I would, I would love to talk to you over coffee for hours that you understand he loves you. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you so you don't have to go through what he did. And he offers you a free gift called eternal life simply by faith, simply by trust, by believing in his word. As he told Thomas, you saw and believed, that's good. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of Resurrection Sunday. Come to Christ if you don't know him. If you do, stand firm in your faith and you'll do well.